Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Health Via Modern Nutrition H4Men podcast. This is your host, Jeffrey Wu. And today I'm really excited to bring on a longtime friend to have uh, hopefully a mind opening conversation. I'd like to introduce my good friend, Monsal Denton. Good to have you in the program. Thank you, man. It's been many years that we've been following along with each other and connecting from afar. And it's uh, great to have a conversation that we actually record here. Awesome. So let's start from the top. I always like giving our audience a little bit of a context and I'll give you my sense of our initial context. Love to hear your thoughts in terms of how we overlap in terms of interests and in and, and our work. So I date the initial explorations back to the world of nootropics, cognitive enhancement. That was the early days of my foray into biohacking where I thought that enhancing cognition was probably one of the most high leverage things to do because we're all intellectual creative workers now. And if we can get incremental eek in cognitive performance, well, there's a power law uh, reward for that incremental increase in creativity, creativity and output. And I remember that you were one of the early tastemakers in the nootropic space and involved in doing a lot of education and content in that area. And I think we actually met up in person in Austin at one of the early, early biohacking conferences. And from there, I think we've definitely expanded our pursuit, our journey across our understanding of humanity, of life, of philosophy. And I know that one of the things that I've been very interested in tracking along is your exploration into plant medicine, into ancestral living, into hunting, into masculinity. So very excited to sit down and have this conversation on that transformation, that evolution. How does that sound in terms of tracing a little bit of history here? Yeah, that sounds perfect. I remember, I think we met up because I tweeted you when you were going to be in Austin and we got together, had a good conversation. As with most good friendships, there has to be a resonance. So, you know, we, we both said, yeah, let's meet up with a stranger and the rest is kind of history. So, you know, to some degree, it feels like we've both evolved as we've grown. And I mean, that's hopefully everybody has that experience. But as our individual growth has occurred, there seems to be a lot of overlap and interests. 100%. So that's a little bit of a hot, fun historical overview from at least my perspective. Curious to hear about your story in terms of your background, your, 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 your genesis here and how you got into nootropics and how that led you down your current path and, and your current work. Yeah, that's a big question. And I think so much of my life, uh, the path I'm on currently, the, the path I was on that led me to nootropics dates back to being arrested young in my, in, when I was 19, 20 years old and having a pretty abrupt and one might say traumatic experience with the law. And, uh, to give people context, I'm 20 years old. I can explain more about what the crime was, et cetera, but I'm 20 years old. I think that everything's fine. I'm about to fly back to Europe to go to school and travel. And a uh, series of, I think, probably two dozen FBI, local police, uh, Texas Rangers basically come come into my house cuff me, start taking up a bunch of things. And uh, I spent just a night in jail at that time. And it was such a jarring experience. And then going home, I remember just having basically like three to six months of depression, eating terrible food, wa binge watching The Sopranos and all the great HBO series. I'm glad I watched them, but not in that capacity. So there was just a a really, really low point in my life. And I think it probably resonates with everybody having some type of low point where I felt I needed to bounce back in some way. And I was really grateful for entrepreneurship being one of the gateways. A lot of people have different gateways into self-development and entrepreneurship was one of those gateways for me getting into entrepreneurship, starting my own business, recognizing that I could take 
the the money that I was generating from my own business and move out on my own, pay for my own college, move to a city that was more in resonance with the ideas and the culture that I wanted to be a part of. And all of the, you know, like kind of in my eyes anyway, an underdog story going from a very, very low place to slowly kind of working my way up. And at a certain point, the nootropics entered the conversation as substances that could improve me in some way. That was really what I was aiming for. I was looking for self-improvement, whether it was in Vipassana meditation or whether it was in the, you know, eating a little bit differently. I was raised vegetarian, so I started eating meat or whether it was going to the gym or nootropics, whatever the case was, I just wanted to improve myself. In retrospect, it was, there were elements or flavors of wanting to not just improve myself, which could be considered to be a good thing, but more I wanted to fix myself because I thought I was broken, which can be kind of a not so healthy place to come from. But I'm glad that I started with nootropics and for business reasons, I think both of us can probably acknowledge and we definitely both benefited from the trend of nootropics was was popping about the time that we got into it. And so we we, we leveraged some of our entrepreneurial skills in order to to take that to the, another level. But, you know, that the idea that I could use substances to alter my performance and I could see or more importantly, I could experience a significant change with something like just as simple as caffeine gave me a lot of context for what other substances could be used to alter not just my performance because performance is important but is so one dimensional and it is very much speaking to the civilization that we've built but also there are substances that it could expand my consciousness and could expand the perspective that I have on the world, the way of being that I exhibit or bring into the world. And so that was kind of where some of the foray into psychedelics came from. So, you know, personally, I would say like so much of what I'm into now is is a an awakening of a desire for self-actualization that came through the catalyst of being arrested and then later on going to prison. Yeah. And thanks for sharing that, first of all. And I remember the first time we sat down and you were very upfront in terms of some of your history. I was, I remember thinking, wow, this guy is one either, you know, super transparent and or he is somehow like using a sob story or trying to somehow like scam me in some way. Because like, I think at that point in my life, I think most of us, when they hear of uh, someone who's been convicted, it's it's something that's shameful or not something a lot of people talk about. Right. And I feel like that. In, in, and I think as I've matured over the years, uh, you know, we can talk about exactly the details if that's you know worth talking about. But to me, it's if you've paid your debt to society by your prison term, then we have to give people a chance to open up that new second page to turn and, and, and be productive members of society, right? Like there's not a point in terms of someone makes a mistake and destroy their lives forever, right? That's that, that, that doesn't seem like a very socially graceful way of running a civilization or society. And I think one thing that I've found, especially salient now is that I feel like the people that enjoy and are most thoughtful and understanding about a life well lived had had some sort of like tough challenge or a cataclysmic approach towards death or some sort of like very very negative event and i and i think one thing that this is again maybe more on the philosophical or commentary side i feel like in america we are so lucky to be relatively wealthy, relatively safe, relatively soft, we're all in soft, safe spaces, that very few of us have actually a real conflict with something hard, with something that's dangerous, actually scary. Like, I, I think we can think about the times that 
we literally thought we were going to die or fear for our lives. And I feel like for many of us, fortunately, that's zero. But I think like an experience like, you know, seeing 24 agents pop up at your house and you're like, like, I'm sure that was kind of a near death experience at, at some level because it's so surprising, so sudden. And it's something that society has made to be so negative that it essentially, I'm, I'm sure it was like close to an ego death or a near death experience at, 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 at an intellectual level, not necessarily like a physical level. And I've found that people that have gone through that experience end up understanding, appreciating, appreciating that we actually have a life much in, in a much more deep way. And I feel like it sounds like at least from our conversations in your journey that you've really been able to use that as a jumping board into positivity as opposed to, I think, a lot of society as they go into the justice system never can come out of the justice system. So in, in, in that lens, like one, you probably have a deeper understanding and resilience than the average person through like a unique hardship. And then two, it's, it's hopefully the model that all of us can take some inspiration of in terms of being super low and transforming and flipping it into something that's positive, that's a motivating factor. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that reflection. And in many ways, I feel very blessed to have had the experience I did. I, I, I consider going to prison the greatest or best experience of my life, the most important for sure. And a lot of that comes because I was very, I grew up very gifted as far as upper middle class, many things privileges. Education was very, very focused in my life uh, as a as a child. And so, you know, I, I don't give myself, uh, I only give myself half of the credit, so to speak, or some percentage of the credit of, of how I turned that experience around. But really, if you look back at indigenous cultures, hardship was a huge part of any male especially transition from boyhood into manhood. There are notoriously physically painful, what we would consider to be like grotesquely abusive rites of passage that men went through in order to have the wisdom of experience, the humility to lead other people to uh, be in the world with other people. An Aboriginal elder kind of shared with me his his culture and the way that they do things. And he said, the number one sin in Aboriginal culture is to consider oneself greater than the other people or greater than the land. And so a rite of passage, as hard as it may be, is meant to inflict such utter humility that the people will never feel that they are above other people or above the earth. And I am plenty arrogant in my own ways. I have sometimes far more confidence than I should have. But at the end of the day, there's a very deep humility and desire for service that comes from the time that I spent behind bars. And it was, you know, I eventually I spent six months behind bars in prison in the Texas State Penitentiary. And it was, as you would expect, an, ex an intense experience, especially for someone uh, who is... Yeah, you're 20, right? You're not like a seasoned, hardened criminal guy, right? Like you were a 20-year-old kid. Right. So, you know, having the privilege that I did, it was very much a shock. And that is, honestly, with we can get more into it later, but the work that I'm doing now, a huge portion of that is creating the what indigenous people call like chaos medicine. So it is, or ordeal medicine is kind of what they consider it. And the ordeal is the medicine. And so when I have men who come on these sacred hunting experiences, oftentimes we fast for the first day while we're prepare while we're hunting while we're out hiking in the heat in the sun we're fasting while we are doing sweat lodges while we're doing plant medicine ceremonies in the sun things like that and it's it's a lot of 
upper upper middle class people who are paying to come on these experiences because they didn't have the hardship that so many tribal peoples had growing up and they're looking for that and good on them for that. That rite of passage, I think, has been something I've been thinking a lot about actually. And I think it's quite primal and sexual as just part of human culture, human civilization. Almost every single culture had some sort of rite of passage for both their men and women, right? There's the bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah in Jewish culture, Spartan culture, there's that warrior tradition. Almost every single historical tradition has this kind of challenge. And I would say that in modernity, you can make the argument that high school or college is that kind of rite of passage. But because of the modern culture of everybody's a winner, safe spaces, I think we've really like nerfed that challenge aspect of that rite of passage. It's no longer really a challenge. You can just kind of show up and get the participation award. And that's something that, I think is trying to be reinstalled in our society. I, and I feel like if you look at the most, a lot of the highest performing folks who have that sense of brotherhood or sisterhood or the strong group ties, I feel like a lot of this rites of passage is reflected in selections for special operations or selections for really competitive teams, whether it's Olympic teams or academic teams or military teams, because there is that kind of hey, you've done some hard stuff and you've like shown that you're a man or a woman or a, a, a worthy human being to be a part of our adult society. And do you think that's just cultural? Do you think that's something deeper into in, 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 our, in our DNA that there is something of a hard experience that triggers some epigenetic change or some physiological change that makes us feel like fully formed humans? I mean, this is definitely getting into more speculative pseudoscience, kind of this cross-hybrid of anthropology and, and biology. But there's does definitely, again, there definitely seems to be something there because it's so universal across cultures. And I'm curious to get your diagnostics there, just given what I see as this sense of loss of identity in our modern culture, that we're these singletons without a lot of tight, close tribal groups anymore because we used to just grow up in a tribe, stick with our tribe, go to war, hunt, forge with our tribe. And we have that tight-knit friendship. And now I would say that you have your high school friends. You go, to, you go off to college. You go away from your parents. You go away from your grandparents. Then you travel for a job. You, you, you go to another city. And then you have these transactional friends. And I feel like that's the story of our modern generation where we're all singletons lost in the wind without that spiritual tie or that community tribal tie that I think a rite of passage really anchors. Yeah, I I do believe there's great benefit from challenges in one's life, generally speaking. I don't know that we have to even go back to hunter-gatherers or organized rites of passage to see that in our own country. I mean, America during the Great Depression and World War II was very tribal in, in a bigger way, but in a way that galvanized people to support other people. I mean, in World War II, something like 45% of the produce consumed by Americans was grown in victory gardens in their own backyards. So they had the capacity to consider the, the the repercussions of what might happen to their tribe granted their tribe was you know tens of millions of people at the time so i think our current generation is in many ways soft and in many ways leaderless partially because of the affluence that we've been afforded and there's an old Spartan, or I think it's just Greek uh, proverb or concept about how, you know, weak men create destruction, essentially, and destruction creates strong men, strong men create peaceful times in this cycle that we seem to be in. But generally speaking, I think given the extreme 
rites of passage that I mentioned and the focus of those rites of passage, what you're really identifying or what I would suspect is really going on is this change from being egalitarian and supporting one another in a relatively tight-knit way to being highly individualistic to be to allowing the shadowy sides greed start to run our lives even as we yearn for deeper connection with other people so we're very we're very connective oriented species and i don't think that we're getting all that we need right now and because of that we can't fight for our neighbors we can't try and create something better for for others uh we're all kind of coming from wounded children places yeah so i so i want to just talk about the pros like the the advantages of potentially having this hyper individualized society and i think in some ways that has i think even the playing ground where people can quote unquote live out their dreams and pursue kind of these capitalistic goals. But I think that is just, but I think what's not spoken is the trade-off in terms of just more of a tribal, more commune, more socialist system of these small trusted, everyone knows everyone. There's a social currency tribe to now we're hyper individuals and everything's a currency capitalist transaction, right? And I think that model ends up being very competitive in a society perspective because now we have hyper experts that are super domain experts in every single field and you can cobble all of that together into it's an organization that's very very hyper capitalist efficient and i think that's the challenge of our time because i think capitalism is very very efficient in resource allocating right like america gdp all-time highs but happiness i think this like each of our individual satisfaction is not that great so I think there's definitely some bifurcation or divergence between the proactivity of the human super entity of a capitalist capitalist driven system with the individual happiness, right? Like we're a hyper efficient ant colony where the ant colony is super efficient, but each individual ant is not quite efficient. I think it's happening with nutrition and with, because of, of all the factory farming and all, all these like processed foods that are not optimal for individual health because grass fed, animal products for each of us is going to be quite expensive. And I think the same thing is happening with our social and our cultural practices, right? Like there's no longer these more organized, more like shamanic rites of passage that it would have made sense if there was, you know, a tribe of 100, 200 people that the next generation, we really are thoughtful of bringing them up. Now that business is a government bureaucracy of Department of Education, which is a pile of a mess, right? It's like, it's like if you want DMV to be running your school system, well, it's kind of essentially kind of the same thing. And we can go down that whole path of how education is kind of industrialized. So I want to focus back on your work, which is, it sounds like, and I'm curious where your motivation or inspiration was in terms of essentially recreating a rites of passage, right? Like, it's not necessarily obvious to me that rite of passage would encompass something with like hunting, with uh, fasting, with plant medicine or psychedelics. How did you create this? Or were you inspired by some ancestral traditions to bring this into uh, your system? I mean, I think for me, I think like an interesting rite of passage could be something like national service. We all serve the country for one or two years. I mean, we can talk about different variants of national service or a rites of passage that we think could make sense, but love to hear about your version, your specific philosophy that you've created. Yeah, oftentimes I'm guided now, at least in the past five years, by my intuition and by forces that are stronger than my rational mind. I don't particularly have a brainstorming session where I decided that these things were the best rite of passage. They probably on a large scale are not the best rites of passage, but I'm following some kind of intuition. And I think that intuition is orienting towards something that's very, very old in our history as humans. When a, when a boy became a man in 
most hunter-gatherer tribes, it was done through the process of hunting. And the reason was a man had to be able to provide enough food to be able to support a female partner and then to support children over time. And so hunting was this crucial component of not just a rite of passage from boyhood to manhood, but also like just masculinity in general to to be associated with providing, but in a tangible way. And I think there's a huge difference in providing something it's kind of like, I mean, an example is like pornography. Pornography, a male watches pornography, we can get an erection because our brain is being tricked, but it's not the real thing. It's not sex. And the same thing is true for people who are sitting at homes on their computer and they're seeing their bank account, they're, the number, the ones and zeros on their computer screen are going up but they don't actually feel as though they're providing. There's a different sense of confidence that comes from being out in the field and being able to find an animal, kill it, and butcher it and bring it home. That's a different type of providing than the binary zeros and ones that happen on the computer. And so I think many men, but I'll just speak for myself, I personally wanted to experience that for myself. Now, I started off, I wanted to experience it. I thought, ostensibly, I wanted to experience hunting because I wanted to be closer to my food. What ended up happening was I accidentally scheduled and participated in multiple ayahuasca ceremonies that were very close in proximity to my hunting experience. And my spiritual teacher, who I've I've been working with in one-on-one like mentorship for seven years now, he's got all kinds of indigenous uh, background. He likes to say that the plants, meaning ayahuasca, chose me in that context three years ago for my first hunt because I had visions. I had the first connection to a higher power. I had so much that came in that part of my life where I felt I had a connection to death and I was on a different path. Now, I thought the path of hunting my own meat and being intentional about that was just a side path. It was kind of a hobby that was going to be something I did in my personal life while I was working on my nootropics businesses. But I slowly but surely stepped into the truth that this is a really what I experienced was very meaningful to me and I could create and curate that experience for other men. And I mean, I had an experience that I facilitated last weekend where four out of the five men had times sometime during the weekend where they completely broke down crying. Some some were processing like a suicide of a friend that they remembered after many years because they were intimate with the death of an animal. Some of them were crying because they never felt like they really fit in. And here in this circle, we they felt like they fit in. People connecting to their their the childlike self, the child, the boy inside. And so what I'm doing now is really just Recurating the experience that I had in my life three years ago. And these modalities worked for me. And so I have stepped into facilitating them for other people. That's super cool. I mean, so it sounds like it was a lucky, but not necessarily random chance that you had stacked some of these modalities together. And I meant, I know that you mentioned fasting as well. I'm curious in terms of that physiological challenge of fasting, how does that play into it? Or is that something that came in afterwards or during? I know that for certain plant medicine uh, ceremonies, they recommend special types of diets and or fasting as part of a purification process before going into a plant medicine ceremony. How did the fasting component come in? Well, at first I was fasting because it was the a great biohacking 
tool. I, I did intermittent fasting. I did 24 hour type fasting and I even did like three day fasts. And it was all with the intention of gaining something with my physiology. Now my fasting is almost completely spiritual. And that is because of those experiences with ayahuasca, with hunting, the spiritual side of my life is now the most important thing in my life. It's my North Star. It is the mission that I have in my life. It is the most important relationship in my life. No other human is as important to me as my relationship with a higher power. That's what this work is. And so fasting is a spiritual practice for me. And I mean, just from a purely physiological perspective, I actually experience many things that are similar to psychedelics while I'm on extended fasts. One of my favorite stacks, stacks to use the, the old, the old nootropics lingo yeah. is, uh, I will do a three day fast. I will get into the sauna after it's already been 24 hours. And I will listen to music that is a uh, ceremonial music. So it's like music that I wouldn't have listened to during an ayahuasca retreat. And it so quickly puts me back into like a medicine space that I can feel almost identical as far as like processing emotions and things like that. Now, that's not why I do it. I do it because when I hunt and I take the life of an animal, that's not a trivial act in my judgment. And when I am going days without eating, I'm building the appreciation for that animal's sacrifice. I'm building the gratitude that I have for the simple things like an organ or some ground meat that comes from an animal, something that if you get it from the grocery store is kind of, it's commoditized. It's just something you, you, you grab and it costs nine bucks or whatever it costs. Whereas for me, it is a completely different experience after a three-day fast. And so, like I said, it's a very much a spiritual component to the work that I do. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about ayahuasca or plant medicine. I remember the first time I heard about it, this is, must have been, you know, five plus years ago. It sounded like fun, right? And then uh, and I... As disclaimer, disclosure, I don't have any personal experience with plant medicine ayahuasca, but I remember just thinking, hey, that sounds like an interesting novel experience. So just mainly just have thought about it from a curiosity perspective. Of course, as I got to understand and read and talk to folks who have participated or have, you know, whatever incapacity involved with that community, it seemed like a lot of the actual focus of that tradition is healing trauma working through problems. So to me, it went from kind of a recreational drug or recreational activity to, hey, this is actually sort of much more akin to a medicine, right? Like, so I've lost kind of that direct interest to necessarily experiment on that front. But on that point, I know a lot of friends who have done ayahuasca plant medicine are considering it because they don't want to go down the therapy, uh, the pharmaceutical route of being on antidepressants, SSRIs, where people, you know, feel like zombies or never get, you know, never get off of the, like antidepressants that, you know, a 10th, if not a sixth of Americans have tried, you know, some of these substances at some point. And again, I think to me, it, it's a sign of a broken culture, a broken society. If a 10th to a, a sixth of us need to dilute our neurochemistry to be in a like not suicidal state. I mean, there's something clearly wrong with their environment at that point. So I'm curious in terms of your journey down the plant medicine route, was it recreational for you? Was it trying to heal trauma? What brought you down that particular path versus, I guess, other types of psychedelics, which don't have as much of that shamanic tradition or that medicine tradition, right? There's LSD, there's psilocybin, there's very, you know, MDMA, right? There's a, a cornucopia of different recreational drugs, illegal, scheduled, legal, whatever, what may, what you have, right? Uh, what brought you particularly down the path of ayahuasca? Well, 
I think I was naive going into it and I didn't see it as the very controlled psychedelic for the purposes of healing trauma and things like that. I, I, I also didn't think of it as recreational. I think it was just, I was open to the idea of something that was used by others who I respected for their own improvement. They derived some value in their life tangibly from doing, going through these experiences. And that's what ultimately led me to it. What I found was that there was a lot of trauma that it healed and continues to heal. I don't think it ever necessarily goes away, but it, there are elements that get processed. And in fact, if you look at some of the scientific studies of ayahuasca or DMT or some of the specific alkaloids in the ayahuasca vine, like harmine and harmaline, they actually activate the emotional centers of the brain. And so it's postulated that processing emotions is amplified using the substance ayahuasca. But also, I think there's an incredible value of ceremony and of ritual that we as humans have obviously experienced for, for thousands and thousands of years of setting specific intentions, going to an experience where you know we're traveling, we're setting aside time in our life, we're deciding that our own introspection is more important, perhaps our intention to focus on a very specific aspect of our life, a question or a trauma that we want healed or whatever the case is, that intentionality and the ceremony that comes with a practice that has so much historical context is in and of itself valuable. Regardless of the substance, I think it would be of high value to improve and support my own growth. What I have found, and there's a reason why, for example, ayahuasca is considered to be an entheogen, and psilocybin is considered to be an entheogen. In the Aztec language, Nahuatl, the psilocybin mushroom, it was called God mushroom. And they used it ceremonially. And they used it to connect to divinity, some kind of higher power, but more from the experiential level. level. Like not a book, not some knowledge not regurgitated in a sermon, not a guy in a chair in the, in the clouds. But you experience what God is in a way. Yeah. I mean, that's super fascinating. So one, have you experienced, do you, do you feel like you've experienced God or a higher power? And can you describe that experience? And, and then two, as I've just been curiously reading the literature in the space, we're actually having uh, the author of the Immortality Key who speculates that some of the early Christian wines that is the the eucharist where you're drinking christ's blood right in, in a form of wine those original wines may have been psychedelic wines with different herbs botanicals that had a psychedelic effect which is interesting from a religious perspective if early christians were literally tripping as they're doing the eucharist that i can imagine how this is a very spiritual religious experience where you truly do believe that you're interacting with Jesus, God, or whatever that deity might be. Yes, I can confirm that I personally have the experience of, of a connection to God. And it's it's a feeling I can't really describe in words. And it, it's it's something everybody just has to kind of feel for themselves. I specifically had a unique experience with it where I grew up with zero religious or spiritual affiliation. My, both my parents have PhDs in sciences. They're very scientific oriented. Uh, my mom grew up as culturally Hindu, my dad culturally Mormon. So it was just, they did not practice and they didn't really have views that were spoken about in my, in my, uh, home. Uh, but they weren't against it either. They were just kind of, agnostic to the whole idea. So I had never asked or prayed 
to God for anything. But in the first uh, ayahuasca experience, which was a month before my first hunt, I remember having such empathy for this animal and seeing the gravity of what I was going to do in terms of killing it that I started to cry. And I remember asking the higher power, God, universe, whatever is there, please just allow the arrow to go straight through the heart of the animal and kill it quickly and cleanly. And uh, a month later, I went, I had my hunting experience and very statistically low chance that I would be successful in doing that. But my only shot went straight through the heart of the animal. And that was so resonant to me that it felt like I had asked in desperation out of the goodness of my heart. I, I wanted the animal to not have suffering. And the universe granted me that in order for me to learn to have a relationship with it not because god's watching me and wants me to like have this animal killed but because that was meant to be there on my path so that i could follow this this intuition this connection to a higher power into the work that i'm doing and so that was a relatively unique way that i was uh, brought to it but now ironically I actually feel and experience God in many areas of my life, not even just in the psychedelic or entheogenic realm. So my fasting experiences I can uh, with other substances like cacao or things like that. There are moments in which I can tap into that place. Uh, and so and then this God, it sounds like it's very... It's not necessarily like, you know, the the old man in the sky, the Christian God or the Islamic God or the or a Hindu God or one of the Hindu gods. It seems like a very one of universe sort of higher spiritual power that's non-book denominational. Is, is that correct? Totally. Yes. I, I respect and admire the wisdom traditions that come from, you know, Islam, Christianity, etc. But to me, it's more like the laws of the universe, if that makes you feel more comfortable. And I and I I consider evolution to be in that. I consider like physics and obviously metaphysics to all be under that umbrella because there is something that governs this world that's outside of ourselves, that's higher than ourselves. And you know, I believe that pretty strongly that our ancestors were very close to that fact because of entheogenic plants and substances. In fact, there's some great papers that break down all the Abrahamic religions in terms of like the manna, the shortbread, like all the different substances that were used in early Christianity. There's there's links to LSA, lysergic acid. There's links to the acacia tree and other like dimethyltryptamine analogs and things like that. So there's compelling evidence to suggest that most of the religions uh, had some guidance from plants in their early days. Now, putting on a scientific hat or a more skeptical hat, one thing that I've thought about in terms of these kind of plant medicines is that there is likely some variation with this ayahuasca plant or this tea or this, you know, shamanic practice and the different protocols that they have you through. And Western medicine is all about, you know, controlled, randomized controlled trials, right? You have 200 milligrams of statins or, you know, 100 milligrams of caffeine, right? Like the nootropics world, right? It's just like, here are the exact ratios that you want for this kind of outcome. Is that relevant here in the plant medicine world where there is just some natural, very de standard deviation in terms of the potency of, you know, DMT or you know, all, all the subcomponents of what makes like the ayahuasca brew is that corrected by an expert practitioner, the shaman can somehow perceive and, and modulate the experience given the variation of the ingredients. To me, it's just like fascinating that like, even just from an open-minded perspective, there's clearly some signal here, right? And I think 
I think when science is too closed-minded to say, hey, this is just a bunch of anecdotes, it's all, not, nothing is here. I think that's too closed-minded. It's not scientific to say, hey, there's nothing here. There's clearly like enough signal from enough people with profound experiences that there's something worth investigating here, whether that's the tools of randomized controlled trials or another set of tools. Uh, I'm, I'm curious how you try to reconcile this with more of a Western enlightenment science perspective to reconcile the beauty that you're perceiving and living and experiencing, which I take at hundred percent face value. Like there's something like real there. And how do you reconcile that with your scientific background training, that critical lens? Yeah. Well, there's, there's a few thing, a few directions we can go. I, I think one of them that I, that is cl clearest to understand is if we're waiting for the studies to confirm the things that we experience or know subjectively to be true, then we'll be waiting for decades. And you, you know this as well as anybody. The perfect example would be like a ketogenic diet. Right now, there, there's not that many studies around like a ketogenic diet for healthy people. For longevity, and, you know, right? Uh, yeah. Exactly. It takes a long time. Exactly. It takes so much time. And if you wait, you're kind of missing out on something that you probably could just benefit from anyway. So I think that would be kind of the first way that I would look at it to, uh, to bypass the kind of skeptic uh, approach. Also, there's, there's a sensitivity to what I would consider old ways. There's a sensitivity, there's a connectedness to nuance that is nearly impossible for us as modern humans to appreciate. And I'll give you an example. In the jungle, you can spend time with certain tribes and they you might be talking with them and they'll say, oh, there's a jaguar 200 miles in that direction. And you might ask yourself, what kind of GPS did you just pull out of your ass in order to detect that? But this indigenous person can listen to the songs of the birds and how far the birds are away, the tone of what their, uh, their, their voice, their songs that they're singing, and basically get this cascade of information from a jaguar that is going through the forest, that's bumping into these birds, these birds are making noise, these birds are making noise, and it's traveling all the way back to him. That is a superpower that is literally more potent than some of our best tracking devices. Yeah, fascinating. And there that exists- like that, that, that yeah. literally would look like some demon magic. It would, totally. And so there's so many examples of this where we are just not sensitive to our surroundings. You know, the word indigenous means of a place. It means they are so connected to the place that they are from, every plant, every bug, every aspect of the soil. It is part of them and they are part of it. And we are not like that. And we are so far removed from that that we lose so much of the connection to the outer world. And that is one of the that is one of the other arguments that I would have is that we're we're actually desensitized to so much of the old wisdom that it does not serve us to try and scientifically reason things because we're actually far behind them. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think that's like an interesting context where we no longer are of the land. We just bring all of our environment with us and we just freaking terraform, right? Like the city block that I live in in San Francisco, blam, like the human environment of the 21st century is installed on this piece of earth. So all of that context is completely replaced with an artificial construct. And I think that is something interesting, at least definitely food for thought in terms of 
like the magicalness of how the animals move in their in a natural environment. That's just like an interesting thought there where I, I just keep thinking in terms of uh, uh, technology is so advanced uh, is akin to magic. And I think there's something interesting to think about that applied to indigenous practices that are so subtle, so nuanced that it basically looks like magic to us modern humans, which is equally magical. One thing I want to touch upon is this focus on manhood masculinity. Does your work extrapolate off to the other half of our our, our, our species? We got, you know, more than 50% of us are, are women. Would they not benefit from hunting, plant medicine, rite of passage, just out of scope? How do you how do you think about, you know, the the the, the woman in our in our lives? Well, I have had interest from women and I would love to serve women in this way as far as creating the container uh, for hunting in a sacred way with the medicines, with the reverence. Uh, I believe they would totally benefit from it. I believe they would benefit from the self-confidence that would come, the connection to some like primal uh, roots of theirs. The truth is we all have masculine and feminine energy inside of us. I'm very sensitive, very nurturing. I have a very fostered feminine side. And there are many, me many women, especially today, who have fostered their masculine side. So I would totally see this being uh, a beautiful experience for many women, and I would love to guide them. I, I just simply have had more men who have been willing to take the time and, and invest in this experience than I have women. So that's kind of what I've focused on is the demographic that has come to me in need of support, but I am not at all opposed to and would love to create experiences for women too. One thing that I've realized is much of my work is there is a huge masculinity component to it, but it is ironically one of the most feminine pursuits as well, because hunting may be masculine. It might be masculine to be in a place where you have a mission and you have a goal and it is that animal and you are going to kill that animal in order to provide something. It's a very masculine approach. But remember, we are connected very, very deeply to the mother earth. In order to hunt, you cannot be an observer of nature. You have to be a part of nature. You have to so completely become a part of this feminine essence, which is nature, that it is incredibly healing in the feminine way as well. So it is it is both an incredible masculine practice and it has incredible feminine components of, as well. Got it. Yeah, I think that's been, uh, I would say, a relative positive innovation within our society and culture where your born sex doesn't necessarily force you into a gender construct role. But I would say that there definitely there does seem to be some tension. And I think people are just now figuring out what is, you know, our gender roles relevant, right? And I think that is like an open cultural debate. Like, oh, do we encourage, do we stay at home parents versus not stay at home parents? Is everyone just a career person now? And I think for the pursuit of workplace equality, right, which is that we need like complete equality based on every single attribute is you know on the most extreme side of the politics we need to also realize that there is some sort of natural essence that you're kind of describing that has just been ancestral and i think some might be archaic right and i think it's good to hear that you know women can be great hunters or huntresses whatever the proper term is and they can get a lot of value from there so like i think that's like the good side of the the modernization of culture right it's less about where you come from and what starting attributes you are and it's about self-actualizing the individual but i think how do we tie that with some the best parts of ancestral wisdom i think is like the the uncharted territory that we're all trying to understand and, and venture through yeah and i would also add and i'm very biased but i i would also add that the pendulum has swung towards empowering women which is fantastic however 
civilization as a whole seems to have in many ways left out boys and men. And it used to be that a boy was taught how to be a man by elders, by uncles, by not only his father, but other males, by example, taught how to do things. And I personally never had that. And I felt a, an incredible lack of awareness about, around what it meant to actually be a man and what it meant to be masculine. And in that hole, I filled it with things like I need to be with an attractive woman. And then that need to be attractive woman is what ultimately led me to prison in the first place. And so for me, it is a very personal pursuit to create a container where a man or a boy can feel more like a man. Because again, there's something about the confidence that comes from knowing that I can provide the confidence that comes from knowing that I can, you know, survive in challenging situations in the outdoors and I can handle the elements. It's, it's more than anything, it's healing for the little boy inside many of us men that was never healed and was never taught how to be a man. Yeah. I think, I mean, that, that's absolutely like a, I think a huge kind of worms that our culture and society is still just just broadly figuring out. And I think the same can be said for little girls and women. And I think that is exacerbated because of our current times where everyone is a career parent, right? So now that we've lost the stability of a primary caretaker that's a family member and that's outsourced to the government with very poorly paid teachers who are teaching very generic, very PC, very vanilla lessons and, 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 and values. We're having a lot of lost generation of kids who just like don't have really a North star in terms of values. Uh, and, 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 and that I think a lot of the things that like happen with, with in-person familial teaching that you're talking from like learning from your uncle or your older brother or your older sister, or your aunt. And so I think it's not necessarily even a malicious like Illuminati effort to demasculize men or masculinize women. I think it's just a, a capitalist focus where everyone needs to have a career job and then who's taking care of the kids. Well, we, let's do the capitalist thing, which is outsource it to third party, AKA department of education, which is going to offer a vanilla product to a bunch of millions of kids. So I think what you're tapping into is not even just like helping heal some folks with some trauma. I think you're tapping into the larger yearning of just young people, both men and women wanting mentors and role models in the next, the generation that's been here a little bit before them. I think that's like the deep, like that, the, the fundamental yearning that we're, we're talking about here. Absolutely. I think that's a huge part of the work that I do. And it was very present for me this past weekend because I went around during medicine ceremony and I just sat with people and they just talked and they just shared and they just, there was this sense of how much they appreciated just having wisdom rubbing off on them, so to speak. And I know that I've been incredibly blessed with a spiritual teacher who's 81 years old. He was part of Martin Luther King's congregation. He was a protege of one of Gandhi's protégés. He's such a revered and respected elder. And I've just learned from him for so many years that to be able to pass it along to both men and women is, is, is really a privilege. And it is something that is really necessary now because we have we have the technology and we have all the information at our fingertips to do amazing things or terrible things but unfortunately we don't have the wisdom to match it and wisdom comes from experiences and it comes from elders and what you say is true we these a lot of people just don't have the elders to learn from yeah and you're just thinking of a, a couple mentors that I really look up to that have that wisdom experience of going through hard times. And I think 
in, in some ways it's, it's allowing us to shortcut a lot of that pain. But like, I think having a lot of that pain ourselves makes that wisdom much more understandable. And I think that's where the disconnect is where you can read like the Bible or some Zen Cohen's and, oh, like, you know, this, this simple sentence kind of makes sense, but you don't have the lived experience. So that mentorship of providing that wisdom, personalizing that wisdom, and then yourself actually going through some hardship, I think it's like that full package of really truly ingesting that wisdom in a way that's practical and day-to-day living. So, I mean, I think, I think well said there. So how does this evolve? How does this, how does this grow? So it sounds like this is, you know, the, the, the movement that you want to contribute to help lead, help create, help push forward. What is the master plan? Is there a master plan? What does this look like over the the next few years? Well, the, the big vision is, which came to me more recently is to take this work and first and foremost to protect it to we are afforded a great many protections in the United States given our history and so it is possible for me to actually protect my work under the umbrella of a church and to utilize some of these plant medicines as a sacrament which they are which they have been for many thousands of years and to be able to have the freedom to serve these completely legally. So that is part of the, the tangible vision. But more, more important is having partnership with some land and being able to bring men and women to these experiences that I facilitate, these sacred hunting experiences, but do so on land where they are, where I am intimate, intimately connected and in partnership with the land where I can lead by example of a way in which we as humans partner and truly in the sense partner with land as opposed to desiring purely to extract from it. Because we have a civilization, we've had this civilization that's almost run amok with the desire for productivity, efficiency, scale, and we have lost sight of the relationship and the faith and the trust and the nurturance and service that has to go into the land because a sick land creates sick people. It doesn't take a genius to, to know that. And I can't own all the land in the world and, and govern it, uh, nor shall I try to, to quantify every bit of my life's work. But I can serve as an example that inspires and motivates others to be more in harmony with the land and with the environment. So that's really the big vision. That's awesome. And one, it makes a lot of sense from a, again, from the capitalist, legalistic, regulatory environment. I mean, that's ingenious. And then two, I think it just resonates very clearly with what your work is, right? Like talking about that indigenous almost magic. And it sounds like to really fully self-actualize that vision that you've had, like it does mean having that essentially indigenous intuition about the land where you do the sacraments and the practices and the hunts and all of that so that's like i mean i can't think of a better way to wrap up this conversation here so where do our listeners tune in and follow along and and and, and get in touch with you if they're interested in partaking in ceremony or hunts with you How, what's all the shout outs yeah so i was uh, another sign from the universe i somehow managed to get the domain sacredhunting.com and so that's where all the calendar and experiences and all those kinds of things are located for people who want to join. Uh, I also am pretty active on social media, on Instagram specifically at M-A-N-S-A-L, last name Denton, D-E-N-T-O-N. And just feel free to shoot me a direct message or comment on any of the posts that I have. I generally just try and express connection philosophies that I have about the natural world, about my process, my uh, teaching in it, 
And uh, if anyone's resonated with anything I've shared, I think they'll appreciate the 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 posts. And then obviously the the website has all the details for how to join me. Awesome. Yeah, and I know I'm a subscriber to your newsletter, so tune into that. It's nice, good wisdom in terms of the things that you're reading about, and it's uh, definitely some food for thought. As I'm, exp- you know, at the cutting edge of human performance in my domain, I feel like you're an interesting source of cutting edge, you know, weird signal, right? Like I think that's the beauty of having great people, great networks, because like you're seeing and tapping into an energy, a vibe, a physiology. That's very different from a lot of this area that I focus on, but it's like very fascinating signal that you're helping deliver to to my uh, awareness. So, so sign up for your newsletter as well. Yeah. Yes. Thank you for thank you for that reflection. I've seen my email newsletter de- decrease precipitously as many people who just want to take Adderall in order to improve their mental performance no longer are getting those little tips and tricks. But for those who, again, if you if you've gotten to the end of this podcast, it's obvious you resonate with what I'm sharing. So I think you will appreciate my email newsletter and you can just find that on my Instagram. But yeah, thank you. I am definitely in a, a realm of spirituality and eco connection that is very different, but also very needed in addition to the the quantified world that many of my friends are in. So it's a great combination, us two. Awesome. Well, thanks for, for hanging out, brother. We'll have to hang out in person very, very shortly. Talk to you soon. Yeah, talk to you soon, brother.